Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Then, after a well-deserved summer break, we sit down with two recent astrobytes of our choosing and bring them together, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Alex Galliano. I'm a fifth-year PhD candidate at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where I study supernovae and the galaxies they come from. And I'm Sabrina Berger. I am a PhD student at the University of Melbourne in Australia, big change, where I study the high redshift universe, both theoretically and observationally, at multiple wavelengths. I can't really just say I work on just one thing right now, so we'll just go for that one. <laughs> And I'm Kirsten Boley. I'm a PhD candidate at The Ohio State University, where I study how elemental abundances impact planet formation and evolution. You're listening to episode 61, What's the T on JWST? We're back after, how long has it been? A month? A year? A while. A while. (laughs) (laughs) However long it's been, we're excited to be back and discussing the latest in astrophysics. But first, in one sentence, what's been your favorite part of the time off so far? Kirsten? Oh, one sentence is going to be hard. A sentence and a half. <laughs> well, I think that I've I've been able to spend a lot of the time like just doing summer activities, just soaking up the last bits of summer. Mm. Um, it is my favorite season, so I'm sad to see it go, but happy for fall. <laughs> Love that. And what about you, Sabrina? Mine has definitely been eventful since I am transitioning to living in Australia in a few months, but I think it's a lot. Uh, (laughs) Think of the wombats. Wombats, yeah. Koalas were always my favorite animal, so I'm really excited about that. I think I've just enjoyed being able to sort of focus more on research and do a lot of yoga. (laughs) Nice. And research into yoga? Actually, yeah, I'm getting my yoga teacher training. <laughs> really? Yeah, but I'm slacking on it because it's like a lot of weeks. We can have you as our yoga teacher for our Astro Sound Bites retreat. Oh, yeah. <laughs> when I finish in like four years. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's plenty that happened while we were gone. Just to name a few, NASA smashed a spacecraft into an asteroid. That actually happened. And that's about all I can say before introducing the James Webb Space Telescope, because it's really been dominating the astronomical news cycle since the release of its first images in July. This is surely just the beginning of what will be a remarkable mission, but because there's been so much excitement around the long-anticipated telescope, we wanted to highlight a few of the discoveries that have already made an impact in the field. Before we get into the science, let's get a little bit of an introduction into JWST and why it's already so revolutionary. First off, what is JWST? JWST is the James Webb Space Telescope. It's the long-anticipated successor to (laughs) Hubble. (laughs) And JWST observes at wavelengths between 0.6 to about 29 micrometers, whereas Hubble was just near UV to near infrared. So it was 0.1 to 2.5 micrometers. So JWST goes all the way up into the mid-infrared. 
And if you want some more facts about the financials of JWST, which I found really interesting in my deep dive, it actually cost the U.S. just under $10 billion from manufacturing to launch. Just under $10 billion. <laughs> Not more than Elon Musk's net worth, I believe. So then it's currently the largest optical telescope in space. It's opening up all these new possibilities to study objects that are just too distant, dim, or high redshift to be visible or resolved by the Hubble Space Telescope. The launch was pushed back, I counted, 12 times. Wow. <laughs> but it was launched almost a year ago now, I think in December of 2021. It arrived at L2, or the second Lagrange point, in January 2022. And the data is pouring in, and so are the papers, which is really exciting. What is it going to be looking at? What are the primary science goals of JWST? JWST has a lot of science goals. So it starts off like the small things, looking for exoplanets, looking for potential life. So that means looking at atmospheres of exoplanets as well as directly imaging as well so that's pretty cool yeah it's interesting i think an overarching theme is really the origins in terms of both life in our universe and how the universe formed so obviously these are on two very different time scales there's a lot of jwst science also focusing on the very early universe galaxy and stellar evolution and i think i saw recently the oldest, most distant galaxy was actually just discovered, supposedly discovered with JWT, and it has a redshift of about 13. So some crazy early galaxies that we're also looking at with JWST. Yeah, that's insane. I had heard some of those high redshift discoveries are a little bit suspect because the redshifts are derived from photometry. So it's not actually like a spectroscopic redshift that allows you to definitively say this is at this distance. But if it's true, I mean, it's a pretty insane discovery. Yeah, I did some stuff on this when I was an undergrad where we were looking at this Z10 galaxy and I killed it. Basically, we found that it probably wasn't a Z10 galaxy. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so it was like a mic drop and then I left galaxies and went to exoplanets. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Well, it's clearly going to do a lot of exciting science, and it's clearly just an engineering marvel to be able to pack up all of that instrumentation into a rocket, and then to launch it and unfold it remotely in space. That still boggles my mind. That's insane. So let's now get into some of the science, first with Sabrina, who's going to tell us how JWST confirmed all of our suspicions that if you use glitter even a single time, it gets absolutely everywhere. <laughs> What a great intro to my bite. <laughs> Iconic. Yeah, so I think this bite is also going to kind of motivate some of our suspicions that Alex was mentioning earlier on some of this high redshift stuff. You know, how do we actually determine the age of the things that we're looking at, especially when JWST is still in its infancy? So this bite is called Sparkling Stars Discovering Evolved Globular Clusters at High Redshift with JWST. It was written by Katya Gosman. It's based on a paper by Lamia A. Mola and others, and it was submitted to AppJ Letters or Astrophysical Journal Letters in early August of this year. So this is a really cool examination of JWST's first deep field. So the deep field that they're looking at is this galaxy cluster that was actually originally imaged with the Hubble Space Telescope. 
you can go and Google some really interesting like side-by-side transitions from the Hubble Space Telescope deep field image into JWST, and you can see that the resolution difference is just insane. And they chose this region because they thought it wouldn't be contaminated by closer sources, and so they'd be able to really, really deeply see into our universe, and they were right. The Hubble Deep Field and the JWST Deep Field both show just a bunch of super distant galaxies all at once. They're looking at this lens galaxy, so lensed by the galaxy cluster in the JWST Deep Field, that looks like it sparkles. That's how it coined the name Sparkler. It's like a firework. (laughs) And specifically, they're investigating these point sources, these mysterious point sources, or what I'll refer to from now on as sparkles since I like to use that word, surrounding the galaxy itself. So they're kind of speckled across the image near the lens galaxy. I'll explain the methods in a minute, but if they confirm that these sparkles are globular clusters, the ages they find associated with them would actually show that they were formed simultaneously with reionization. So it could be a really interesting tool into studying reionization since... It's a very mysterious epoch of our universe. Reionization is when the first galaxies and stars were ionizing the intergalactic medium and causing neutral hydrogen to become ionized. It also has potential effects to actually distinguish how globular clusters evolve. So I'm sure a lot of globular cluster scientists these days are very, very excited since there's been this age-old question as to whether globular clusters form at very high redshifts in the early universe or they're a result of younger ongoing star formation. The results described in this bite point to the former, that they are formed at very high redshifts, but of course there's a lot of caveats with this and since we're seeing a lot of this JWST data for the first time. For this sparkly galaxy, what instruments on JWST did they use to observe it? Yeah, that's a great question. The deep field is JWST's very first color, and it's the deepest image. It was taken with the near-infrared camera, but it was actually observed with all four instruments on JWST. It really got the full package here. This large galaxy cluster is called SMAX or S-M-A-C-S, J0723, and it's the cluster that's actually doing the lensing. This cluster is a strong gravitational lens. There are a bunch of types of gravitational lensing, whether that's weak gravitational lensing, where you have to extract the fact that lensing is happening in a statistical way. There's microlensing, which is the amount of light of the background object actually changing in time. And I'm sure Kirsten knows way more about this. She studies exoplanets. How do we know that the galaxy is being lensed? They actually see this galaxy showing up in multiple places throughout the deep field. And it's like stretched out. You can click on the link to the astrobite and see these really cool images of the stretched out galaxies. So usually the galaxy, you know, has this pancake-like shape, but... Due to the strong gravitational field of the galaxy cluster, it actually bends the light and stretches it out in all these different ways. Um, And the fact that we can actually see it in multiple different places in the image and it's exhibiting all this behavior of not looking like a galaxy that exists, looks like a lens galaxy, that's how we know that it's lensed. And then to dive a bit 
more in depth into the details, they used Aperture Photometry, where you basically place these little circles around all the sources in the image and add up the light in different filters. So they did that with all the point sources that they selected by eye surrounding the sparkler, and they calculated a color. And then they placed all of these sources on this color color diagram, which actually is showing the differences between multiple filters on each axis. And when you look at these color color diagrams, you can look for patterns and you can sort of overplot them on galaxies with characteristics that you know about. So there were about seven sparkles that fell in the bluer region, which were shown to be more actively star forming. And then there were five that fell in this redder region, which is really where they focused on because those were the ones that they suspected to be globular clusters. So they took those five red sources and they determined from their spectral energy distributions, basically energy as a function of wavelength, that they were actively star forming early on in their history. So between redshift seven and nine, which is crazy, very, very young. And again, points to the, the conclusion that globular clusters form at, at really young ages. But they were still unresolved in the images and they didn't see any O3 emission in the globular clusters in the red region. They did see O3 emission in the sparkler galaxy itself. So they summed it all up by saying that maybe these globular clusters were sort of quenched early on in history. But the huge caveat here is that because JWST is so new, calibration is still really just starting to pick up and starting to be studied probably as its own subfield itself. And because they don't know the exact magnification of the sparkler, the assumption of that magnification matters a lot. So right now they think it's 10 to the 9 solar masses, but if that mass changes after they do more calibration and determine a different magnification, then the fact that these sparkles that are in the redder region of the color color diagram are even globular clusters could be put into question. What's the significance of the O3 detection in the galaxy and not the globular clusters? That showed that the globular clusters were old and weren't star forming. Got it. You would expect O3 if they were star forming. Yes, since it's an emission line that indicates recent star formation. Do they have like an upper and lower limit of what redshifts it would be if like if the mass was smaller than they expected. So I'm assuming it would be lens less, so it wouldn't be as old. Yeah, so I don't know if it would place the globular clusters in a different redshift. It, it would point to the redshift that the globular clusters did their most formation at. That's so cool. It's probably a whole like totally new paper. <laughs> they mentioned that they're hoping to explore this in more detail in further papers, but they seem pretty confident that these were globular clusters that were quenched or stopped star forming um, really early on. If this is true, if it all holds up, then it points that globular clusters might actually help provide information about galaxy formation and reionization that we might have not thought they could. So it's a really exciting result. And I hope to see more papers on this object in the future. That is indeed very cool. That's super awesome. And it's amazing to me that from the like deep field image that is so pretty and for like public consumption, you know, it just looks incredibly cool. You can also do science on that data. That's fascinating. That deep field image to me is what I think of when I think of an astronomer looking at like images and dissecting images. <laughs> yeah. And then I'm over here looking at light curves. But. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I want to be a real astronomer one day. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Sabrina, for the astrobite. It's time to move on to the memorable melody of the Fortnite for NASA missions. yeah that was beautiful and also kind of ominous as usual these are always ominous <laughs> what do we think i don't know why initially i was like is this the sound of the jet engines from the jwst mission <laughs> taking off <laughs> i know it's not that but I was yeah like, i was there it- at the launch <laughs> i recorded this <laughs> is this aerospace engineering <laughs> podcast okay so my guess is that it is some sort of nebula or deep field or something with stars and then something that's really noisy. That's why I'm going to guess some sort of nebula where it's scanning over the image. I'm probably wrong, Ooh. but that is my guess. All right. Sabrina, jet engine? Uh, No, <laughs> I'm trying to. Yeah, I think I agree with Kirsten. If I had to think of something, I think I was just a bit too concentrated on the fact that it might have been a jet engine to like really analyze it. So I'll go with Kirsten's response. (laughs) (laughs) Kirsten killed it. It is indeed a nebula. Yeah, it's scanning over an image. This is a sonification of the Southern Ring Nebula in near-infrared and mid-infrared with JWST. Nice. The two images near-infrared and mid-infrared are set side by side and the sonification sweeps through one image after the other. The nebula was created from a white dwarf as it shed its outer layers and ran out of fuel and the white dwarf it's hard because there are some stars in the background but at the very center of all the chaos as you're sweeping through the nebula there's a tiny little blip and that's actually the imaged white dwarf at the center of the nebula and in mid-infrared you can actually make out that the star is in a binary. So you can make out not just the white dwarf, but a second star next to it. It's pretty incredible. The photos are really spectacular. And these sonifications were produced in collaboration with NASA, Space Telescope, Science Institute, and of course, our friend Matt Russo over at System Sounds. We've now played like many System Sounds audios on this show. Does he listen to this podcast? (laughs) Man, I hope so. (laughs) Matt Russo, if you're listening, we'd love to have you on the show. Okay, so well done, Kirsten. Sabrina, second best is not bad at all. (laughs) (laughs) I was actually listening to a whole bunch of space sounds the entire time over the break just so that I could get it right. Just practicing? Just practicing. Eye of the Tiger kind of montage? Exactly. Like multiple times (laughs) a day just putting on my headphones like, okay, what is this? Can you send me a study guide? Yeah, for sure. 
<laughs> well, it paid off. <laughs> okay, next up, Kirsten, you're up to bat. Kirsten is going to tell us about just how hip JWST really is. Sabrina got a much better sparkly intro. <laughs> I need to find something that twinkles next time. <laughs> hey, I tried. I felt good about that one. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. I'm just playing. Everybody's a critic. <laughs> I did love mine. <laughs> The astrobite that I'm going to be talking about today is called JWST's First Directly Imaged Exoplanet. So it's pretty on the nose, and it was based on a paper by Carter et al., 2022, and it was written by Briley Lewis. So like we've been talking about since JWST launched, we've had stunning images from star-forming regions, lens galaxies and even solar system objects. I remember it was maybe last week that an image of Neptune was floating around on Twitter. It was absolutely beautiful. It was like the most ethereal looking thing I've ever seen, which seems weird to be calling a planet ethereal, but you could see the rings. It was beautiful. Mm -hmm. So I'm super excited to share this bite because as the title implies, the planet that was directly imaged by JWST was actually outside our solar system. And it was called HIP 65. Oh, I get it now. <laughs> HIP. <laughs> Just how HIP JWST. I felt great about that. Okay, okay, I take it back. It was great. <laughs> you need to read it in your head like all caps. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, what do you mean, hip? <laughs> okay, I get it. I'm sorry. I apologize. Anyway, so this planet's called HIP 65426b. Although this planet was already observed by JWST, it's an interesting planet in its own right. So it orbits around a young A2 star in the Lower Centaurus Crux Association. So this star fraternity. Wait, fraternity? Actually, it's a star moving group, but it sounds a little bit like a fraternity. <laughs> like Kappa Thai Theta? <laughs> Kappa Theta. Kappa Thai, is that one? <laughs> Kappa Thai. <laughs> so this star isn't a normal star, and that's why this planet isn't just a normal planet. This star is really interesting because it's one of the fastest rotating stars. And since the star wasn't observed to have a debris disk, which is common around young stars, it challenges a lot of planet formation theories because you need a pretty big disk in order to form a planet as far out as HIP 65426b. How fast is the star spinning? It rotates on a period of like 3.2 hours, so it's pretty fast. It seems only natural that the JWS team, if they're going to directly image a planet for the first time, they might as well choose a super interesting one. Also, did you call them the JWS team? That's very cute. It is cute. <laughs> <laughs> what instruments did the JWST researchers actually use to observe the planet? Or maybe it's instruments. They used NIRCAM and MIRI. And so NIRCAM looks at wavelengths of 0.6 to 5 microns, and it has five separate filters. And then MIRI is further into infrared, so it's mid-infrared, and it looks at between 5 and 28 microns, but it only has two separate filters. And 
the reason why Miri and Mirkam are so important for observing planets is that because planets are much cooler objects, the light that they emit is faint and a large portion of it is in the infrared as opposed to optical. So the same instruments that are used to view high redshift galaxies are perfect for viewing young planets. And both of these instruments also have coronagraphs, which are also extremely important when you're trying to get images of exoplanets. Can you explain what a coronagraph is? I feel like I've heard it, but I want your planetary explanation. A coronagraph is a small optic that blocks the light from a bright host star so you can see the comparatively faint planet orbiting around them. Think about being outside during the summer at the beach, and one of your friends is in the water telling you to come in, but the sun is so bright that you can't see them. So you lift up your hand to shield your eyes from the sun, and voila, you see them on their floaty, <laughs> drifting out to sea, actually yelling for help. They don't want you to come in at all. <laughs> <laughs> the coronagraph in this scenario is your hand. Surely it's a specialized piece of equipment that does more than just like block the light from the star, or is that all it's doing? So if you want to boil it down to everything, yeah, that's basically what the coronagraph does. It it just blocks the star's light. There is a, a smart way to do it. So it's not like they just put a circle out or like, <laughs> it kind of looks like a, almost like a flower, but it keeps it from diffracting light as much. So if you think of movies where they have a lens with like the sun and there's this flare on like the film that we've grown used to, that is kind of what you're trying to avoid, this glaring sort of stuff. Got it. That is super cool. Yeah. So with these instruments and the seven filters that JWST has, they were able to observe the planet in actually all of the seven filters. And this included these little oblong images that sandwiched the planet kind of like a hamburger. Sorry, do you mean sandwich the planet with its host star like you observe the planet and then you see these little two little light oval shaped little things around the planet they do look like hamburgers first of all but these little bun shaped objects are actually called liot stops and they're artifacts that are caused by diffraction from using the coronagraph so kind of like we were just talking about you'll get some of that star flare but you can also get this diffraction where you end up having multiple kind of squished images of the thing that you're observing, similar to lensing, but not exactly the same thing. So they're basically all the buns and the patty are all the planet itself, just like diffracted to appear twice. Yeah, exactly. Or three times. Did JWST place any new constraints on the properties of the exoplanet, or was it more just, this is a proof of concept, we have now shown that we can directly image exoplanets with JWST, and now all this new science will come later? Yeah, so they were able to make a lot of improvements on the measurements. Since JWST has a large span of wavelengths covered in infrared, they were able to constrain the, the planet's bolometric luminosity or the energy output across all wavelengths. And the photometry was so precise that NIRCAM had roughly 4.5 times the precision of ground-based observations and MIRI was two times better precision. 
And so they were able to constrain these parameters really well using these measurements, along with some of the thermal evolution and atmospheric models. And so they found that the planet mass was around 7.1 Jupiter masses, and the temperature was around 1,200 Kelvin. So it's a, it's a pretty spicy planet. That's toasty. And then also that the radius was 1.5 Jupiter radii. And the constraint on the radius is around three times more precise than it was before the JWST data. It sounds like you can really constrain these planet parameters a lot better with JWST compared to ground-based observatories and other instruments. So what's the smallest planet that you could actually be able to observe with JWST? So the authors were also curious about this. So they actually ended up looking at this by doing injection and recovery tests, which just means they insert simulated planets into their data and try to rediscover them. And what they found is that the smallest planets around A2 stars at around 150 to 2000 AU from its star was 0.4 Jupiter masses, so pretty small. And Miri was able to detect a little bit less sensitive around 1 to 2 Jupiter mass planets at the same distance. And to give you some context, ground-based direct imaging has not been able to detect anything lower than roughly two Jupiter masses. So this is a huge improvement. And for fainter M-type stars, they expect that we'll be able to detect even gas giant type planets between 100 and 200 AU. So JWST is actually able to see a lot smaller of planets than we even initially expected. So that's super cool. That was my astrobite. Thanks so much, Kirsten. I'm excited to see all these ultra-small exoplanets that we discover in the future with JWST. I know. Just imagine looking at the surface of, like, a lava planet. Just seeing the magma. (laughs) All right. Well, we're all excited about all the different things that we're going to learn with JWST. But to really bring it home, Kirsten sat down with Sarah Rugheimer. My name is Sarah Rukheimer. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And I am an associate professor at the at York University in Toronto and was appointed as the Alan I. Carswell Chair for the Public Understanding of Astronomy. So as part of my job, I get to also do research as well as public outreach. That is actually super cool. Do most associate professor positions have that built in? It doesn't seem like it's very common. No, it's actually, I think there's only one or two positions like this where outreach is explicitly allowed, shall we say, um, (laughs) and even uh, encouraged. So I have some teaching relief in order to do more outreach. So I'll teach a little less than your typical professor in a research faculty job, Um, Mm -hmm. but it is the research position. So like a normal professor, I'll have a research group and be continuing my exoplanet atmospheric research and then also doing outreach as well. That's awesome. So, speaking of research, I know that you do exoplanet atmosphere characterization and biosignatures, so I imagine that you're pretty excited about JWST. Oh, absolutely. So, first off, what are you most excited about in terms of JWST and the data that's coming out? I think there's two things I'm really excited about, maybe three. I mean, there's infinitely things that I could be excited about, but if we're going to limit it to exoplanets, I'm really excited that we're going to just have so much uh, so much greater understanding of 
exoplanets in general. So this includes the non-Earth-like ones. I, you know, Earth-like ones are my favorite, but we're going to learn mostly about non-Earth-like planets with James Webb. So I'm excited about that science because that's a necessary step in order to also understand Earth-like planets. And I think along with the more rocky terrestrial Earth-like planet, James Webb is going to be able to characterize a few of those, not many, a handful you know, like six or something. That will give us our first hint as what's happening in the atmospheres of terrestrial habitable Earth-like planets orbiting M stars. But I don't think we're gonna be able to have a lot of answers because the sample size will be so small. So we'll probably argue a lot about what those mean. <laughs> of course. Uh, if, if the history is anything to go by. So the thing I'm most excited about learning though is a question that I think we really need to answer which is do planets orbiting M dwarfs, do they have thin atmospheres at all? And that's something James Webb will be able to answer. So we know that planets orbiting M stars can have thick atmospheres, you know, that's clear. It also seems clear that probably some planets just don't have an atmosphere, but can they have an atmosphere that's thin, that we can see through, that we can look for signs of life, that's Earth-like in that way, where when I say Earth-like, just meaning say like a pressure that is conducive to us being able to characterize it for and habitability and inhabitants later. So I think it's not clear whether M stars can actually host those types of planets because of their high activity levels, because of their high flare rates, because the planets are you know, close and tidally locked and receiving much more high energy flares. Uh, it's not clear if those atmospheres are stable and James Webb will tell us. And I think that's the single thing I'm most excited about because that's really critical for us then understanding what types of host stars we need to target in the future, as well as just understanding planetary habitability in general. There's always this question of why aren't we orbiting an M star? If M stars don't have, you know, thin atmospheres, that's your answer. But, you know, I'm hoping that's not true because M stars are awesome <laughs> and they make up such a wide fraction of the universe. I hope we're just a statistical, you know, effect. Same. I mean, a lot of the terrestrial planets we're finding anyway are around M dwarf stars, and this brings me to my next question. How is JWST different than previous instruments like Hubble, for example, when you're trying to get transmission spectroscopy? Hubble, you know, is a UV-Vis mission, whereas James Webb is in the IR, right? Near IR and IR. And so James Webb is just probing completely different wavelengths, mm -hmm. which means different types of science that we can look at. And for atmospheres, especially more molecules have infrared features than they do have visible or UV features because of the vibrational and rotational modes of molecular spectra are in the infrared. So James Webb has a number of instruments that will be able to do this, MIRI, NIRES, NIRSPEC. And I think it's like through a combination of these instruments that we're going to build up across wavelengths and the types of information they can get a better understanding of what's happening in the atmospheres of those planets. So, you know, I like all of the instruments on James Webb. I especially like that it's in the infrared. And I think that's its biggest advantage for doing exoplanet atmospheres. Yeah, it kind of sounds like the classic, the more observations you have at different wavelengths, the, the more information that you can get from the system, which is super cool. And to shift topics by a little bit, we can't really talk about JWST without talking about the controversy surrounding the naming of it. 
And so I was wondering if you would be able to share your thoughts on the naming of JWST. Sure. You know, I don't have so much to say other than it's it's a shame because what we have so many other great scientists we could name a telescope after. And why do we choose names of people that, you know, weren't so friendly in the past, especially to marginalized groups? So I think James Webb's participation, and certainly he didn't stand up for LGBT persons back in his era. While I understand there's a question of doing our morals on past history is always something that people can talk about. However, I feel like we could name it something else. And why don't we? Why don't we Mm -hmm. name it after any of the incredible uh, scientists who either were LGBTQ themselves or women scientists or other groups? I think it's somewhat tragic. I understand there's a lot of competing ideas out there for how telescopes should get named, but it does seem like this one could have been better named. Yeah. Yeah, I think so too. When we were thinking about doing this episode, we were like, we can't really get around talking about the naming of it. Yeah, I just kind of wanted to see your thoughts as well on it. One thing that is worth noting is I remember reading a post from a queer scientist, a queer astronomer on James Webb. And what they pointed out, which is very true and very sad, is that I think no straight astronomer signed that initial letter for the renaming of the telescope. I don't remember when this was sent around. I was in Europe. I wasn't paying as much attention to it. But the the, the fact of the matter is, if we're in the dominant group, we need to advocate for groups with less power. I think one thing that definitely happened with this is that straight astronomers did not advocate for the renaming of the telescope. Only queer astronomers did. And that's really unfortunate. And I remember reading that and feeling sad, sad that I didn't get involved, sad that I didn't sign that letter, sad that I didn't use whatever power I have to change this outcome. And going forward, what can we do in the future when something comes up where it's not directly impacting us, but we could maybe do something about it in a small way. I think that's another kind of lesson learned, hopefully from James Webb for astronomers who do care about equity, that in the future we pay attention to these things when they're first being brought up and and try to get it changed right from the beginning rather than you know it gets to the point where people are like oh it's too late you know and then it doesn't yeah well originally it was supposed to be called like the next generation telescope or something like that was it I I don't know (laughs) yeah yeah it's really weird if we hadn't have tried to change it to begin with we wouldn't have ran into this issue a lot of telescopes do change name though right I'm sure Hubble was originally like called something else first so We need to be careful about that. We know these missions will change, you know, because they're called something first as a placeholder and then they get changed. And let's do a job of honoring the values we want to honor. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts. And I guess I'll wrap up with this last question. You've kind of hinted at it a little bit earlier in the other questions, but after JWST, what's the next big thing for exoplanet atmospheres and what are you excited about going forward? Yeah. So, I mean, we have a number of things in this decade, which are cool. So we have um, the ELT, the European uh, Extremely Large Telescope, so creatively named, which will do high resolution spectroscopy from the ground. It'll be able to look at molecules in the atmospheres of exoplanets, including isotopes. I don't know if you've come across that research, but Mm -hmm. uh, with high resolution, you can actually 
detect heavy carbon monoxide. So C13O versus C12O in a hot Jupiter, you know, which is amazing. So just the difference of one neutron changes the high resolution spectra enough that with high resolution spectroscopy, even with cryo-res plus on the VLT, that's detectable. And the ELT could detect heavy water. So like HDO instead of H2O around Proxima Sun B. So I think that's super cool. We're going to have that come online in the mid 2020s. You have Plato being launched by the European Space Agency as well as Ariel. Plato is going to get these really accurate radii and masses and then therefore densities as well as stellar ages. So that's not really an atmospheric characterization mission, but it's an interesting thing of like a bigger Kepler. Then you also have um, Ariel, which will do just targeted atmospheric characterization, but still not getting at the Earth-like planets. So <laughs> what do we, we need that? We need that. And, and that's been even the next decades, you know, will be that. So that would be something like Louvoir or HabX, depending on what NASA decides to go for. That's uh, sort of some mission in between the two was what was recommended by the decadal survey. They didn't recommend uh, the full size of Luar, which I'm sad about because I, I do want a bigger telescope. <laughs> uh, but then then the what I'm really excited about, and I'm part of the mission team, is the LIFE space mission, mm-hmm. which is the large interferometer for exoplanets. That's a European design mission out of ETH Zurich. And that mission would be able to do dozens of Earth-like planets. We're hoping to get like 50 Earth-like planets around uh, FGK as well as some M stars. And I think that would start to get us at this answer of, are we alone in the universe? Can we detect life on another planet? And that's what I'm really excited about, as well as, of course, they'll be able to do all sorts of other planets too. So the life mission is the thing I think I'm by far the most excited about. Both life and Luar and Habex, they're still mission concepts. They haven't been selected and really entered that getting the design exactly hammered out phase, but that's what I'm hoping for. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for interviewing with us. We are super excited about JWST. So it's amazing to have someone on the podcast that's just as excited as we are. Thanks again, Kirsten and Sarah, very much for that interview. It's time for our one sentence summaries before we round out the episode. Why don't you go ahead, Sabrina? So in JWST's exciting first color image of a galaxy cluster, Globular clusters surrounding one of the galaxies lensed by the cluster may present a potential glimpse into the earliest objects to have ended their star formation in the universe. Nice. And Kirsten, what's yours? From the first directly imaged planet with JWST, it's clear that this telescope will greatly improve our ability to directly observe exoplanets and constrain their properties and potentially even look at a few ice giants. That concludes episode 61 of Astro Soundbites. What's the T on JWST? If you want to read the two astrobites we talked about today, and or read the associated papers, check out the links in the show notes. And of course, if you want to hear more, we're now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Audible, Amazon Music, wherever you get your podcasts, we're there. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos. Unsure how to pronounce that? (laughs) (laughs) J-Zero. I never know whether you say it as the word or you spell out the acronym. That's just such a hard question in astronomy.